the future of, of everything in society is related in some way to the future of energy. That was Chris Skidmore, MP, author of the government's Net Zero Review and one of the guests I'll be speaking to on this podcast. He makes an important point. How we achieve net zero is more than just a political or environmental decision. It is one that will have huge societal impacts. How we get our energy translates to how we move around, how we heat our homes. It's a reminder that the energy transition has many trade-offs as we navigate achieving net zero while protecting the well-being of people and industry, especially at a time of a cost-of-living crisis. Might hydrogen be part of the answer? In this podcast, I'll be speaking with those working in government, NGOs, and industry about how to unlock this technology. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's Economics Editor. Welcome to a special edition of Spectator Briefings, sponsored by National Gas. Hydrogen has long been proposed as a solution to achieve net zero by 2050. On the surface, it sounds great. Hydrogen is a simple atom and one of the most abundant. Hydrogen can be extracted from an H2O molecule using methods such as electrolysis, or more controversially, by using natural gas, which in turn creates a carbon dioxide byproduct, most of which can be captured and stored. The hydrogen then burns clean, making it a greener alternative to methane or natural gas for home and businesses. I spoke to Chris Stark, Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee, an organization that has long advocated using every technological route at our disposal when achieving net zero. I started by asking him about that mix and where hydrogen fits in. Thank you for that introduction, because I think that is a good description of what we've tried to do at the Climate Change Committee. I mean, very briefly, our role is to point a way forward for the country. So hydrogen is really important to that story. The, the central strategy for the whole of the UK and indeed for every developed economy is mainly about electrification. So, you know, we should be cleaning up the source of electricity. So in the UK, that's a mixture of nuclear and renewables principally, and then having something alongside that to make sure that the energy system works. And then moving the real economy, the onshore economy, the, the way in which we live our lives and the way in which commerce happens as much as we can towards electrical technologies. But what we know is that that's not enough. But you need something over and above electricity, which is hydrogen as the kind of answer to what you do for those areas where you can't electrify. And that's important for industry. So those areas where you've got industrial processes that presently use fossil fuels and require very high temperatures, hydrogen gives you an answer there. It's potentially important for long distance transport, particularly as a fuel for potentially shipping uh, freight. And it's very, very important, and I'm on a mission to make this point, it's very, very important within the power sector itself. So how we generate electricity, we need to bring in the discussion of using hydrogen there too, because the key thing with hydrogen is it's a fantastic store of energy and you can use it, combust it without causing the problem of climate change. So if we can flip our power system to using hydrogen in that way, then we can have a very useful complement to renewables and we can have a decarbonized power system. But you've also before said that it's a defining energy challenge for the UK. Why do you think there hasn't been as much priority around hydrogen as there has been in, say, other uh, greener forms of energy? And, and why do you think there is still this pushback sometimes on hydrogen in a way that you just wouldn't get with other forms of energy? It's a very good question. I mean, I think 
the reason we haven't developed hydrogen at the same scale we've developed renewables or even nuclear for it is is that I, I'm not sure we were quite ready to adopt it at the scale we probably need to adopt it now for the energy system. But I think it's become clearer and clearer, or rather there's been a greater and greater consensus around the need for hydrogen in the energy system, partly because it offers you something that no other energy source or store does. It's a vector, essentially. It's a carrier of energy, is, and you can use it in a decarbonized way. And there isn't really anything that gives you the same thing than hydrogen. And we're moving into a slightly different discussion of hydrogen, which where is the priority to use it and, and where should we use it? And you get into this very contested discussion about whether it might be a replacement fuel for heating homes in the UK. And my feeling is that it could be, but it could play that role. But there are other technologies out there, notably uh, electrified heat or heat pumps that have essentially set themselves up as a kind of rival technology. So you've got this kind of debate happening about what to do in, in heat uh, in the future, which has become very contested. And in a sense, that's infected the broader discussion of how you should use hydrogen in, in a way that is actually, I think, quite unhelpful because we know we'll need hydrogen in industry sectors. We know we'll need hydrogen. Well, at least I think we need hydrogen in the power sector. And we could be getting on with developing those priorities right now. And so it would be possible for the government today to rule out hydrogen for domestic heat, for example. And that would make it very clear, you know, where you should use hydrogen and what we need to do now to develop the infrastructure for it. The government has said it will make that decision by 2026. So we're in a kind of interesting point right now where in a sense, we're trying to keep all the options open. But I, I interesting, I think that that is part of the problem that because there are too many options, we have a vast set of scenarios for hydrogen use and the work that the CCC has done because we're waiting for that 2026 decision point. We have 70% of homes being heated from hydrogen, heated with hydrogen boilers in 2050 in one scenario, and we have you know, almost none in another scenario. It is very difficult to develop an infrastructure strategy for the country in a world where there is that range of scenarios. So the key issue actually is the government's attitude towards it. So you know that issue of domestic heat really sits at the heart of I feel more and more like that's that's preventing progress, actually. That I, I would prefer a, a, a quicker decision on this to try and develop the, 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 the low regret infrastructure that we really do need as, a, as an economy. Well, let's dive into that domestic heat question, which I think, you know, consumers and a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to be most concerned about when it comes to the the new forms of energy that will be heating their homes and, and the, the costs attached to it. Recently, we've seen a hydrogen boiler pilot scheme cancelled. Do you think that was right? Do you think we should be experimenting more, even if a lot of people aren't convinced this is going to be the right technology for that particular purpose? For me... It's hard to say that it was the wrong decision for that community because it was the community themselves that said they didn't want it. And I, and I think there's a lesson here for those who propose hydrogen as a, 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 an answer to domestic heat is that they're going to have to do better at explaining to consumers, to people, let's not call them consumers, let's call them people. You, they need to explain the benefits better and they need to be able to explain to them the benefits of a trial like this. And that, I'm afraid, didn't happen in the first of these trials. Sure, sure. And do you think that argument can be made and won by hydrogen enthusiasts? I Again, I know you're a bit more skeptical, but when it comes to efficiency gains, when it comes to cost, is there a world where hydrogen can compete with other options? I think there is. But it, I mean, interestingly, we're talking about hydrogen as though it is a mature technology. Right. 
and and it's not. And this is We're one of the key yet. issues really is that you've got uh, you've you've although I see the capacity to use it and I see the potential for it, it is up against a set of existing technologies that do work. So well, obviously we have boilers that burn natural gas. So and, and heat pumps, which is the the technology that often is presented as the competing technology to hydrogen. It will always be a very, very efficient way of using that unit of electricity to create heat because it borrows heat from uh, the external environment and and, uh, and does it in a very efficient way. So I think in the end, the story on hydrogen has got to, it's got to really centre around how convenient it is for people rather than how efficient it is. Mm. And it's that convenience factor that in the end will determine whether or not we as a country embrace it to, to heat homes. And on that point about developing hydrogen into a more mature technology, what are the barriers that are existing to its long-term growth as an alternative energy source? Well, the key barrier is the willingness of policymakers to support it, I think. I've no no doubt whatsoever that you can you can use hydrogen to create heat. I'm fairly sure having visited the health and safety executive myself that you can also do so safely. In the end, the energy sector is driven fundamentally by policy, even if we might not like that to be the case. So the key barrier is the willingness of policymakers to support it. And uh, uh, maybe a secondary point to that is in which areas of the country are they planning to support it? I mean, that's where you need to develop physical infrastructure to support that with a physical plan to convert the building stock to to handle it. And um, you know, we, we are going to run out of time eventually if the conditions aren't right for that, that decision to be made by ministers. Whilst hydrogen seems like it has a role in the transition, does government agree? I sat down with Chris Skidmore MP and Emma Pinchbeck, CEO of Energy UK, the trade association for the UK energy industry. I started by asking Chris about the government's view on hydrogen and what support he's seen for the technology since he published his net zero review in September 2022. I, I, I always say you know, in politics, you can look back a year and say, you know, have we made progress? And now we've seen you know, a number of uh, directions going in the right direction. We've seen a, a lifting of the moratorium on onshore wind. Uh, we have seen the government agree to about 100 of the 129 recommendations I made in the uh, Net Zero review, not least to have a, a long-term uh, roadmap for hydrogen. So I feel confident. You know, I think the challenge with uh, energy policy is you can always do more. The, the future of, of everything in society is related in some way to the future of energy. Mm. And Emma, in terms of costs, we've had a lot of conversations recently about that balance between what the consumer is asked to bear, but also around energy security more generally, mm. and then what's ultimately best for the environment. And the energy security bill has played a crucial role in this. To focus in a bit more on hydrogen, it includes a 10-point plan for hydrogen development. Can you take us through your assessment on the government's approach to hydrogen? Do you think enough is being done? Unsurprisingly, I don't think the industry thinks enough is being done. And just taking a step back at why that is, oddly, it's not the renewables piece that keeps me up at night, though more so after our recent auction results. But the it is the gas transition. It's the stuff that we can't electrify because we know we'll have to have some burning of molecules left, we think, on the system. And that means either carbon capture and storage or hydrogen. 
So for things like really heavy industry or I don't know, maybe shipping, jury's out on that one, or certainly for balancing things in the power sector, we think we need it. Hardly any conversation about that. And nowhere near enough volume in the market being created and certainly no clarity about where we'd like to see hydrogen used across the economy. If we could just get a really clear steer from government about where they want it, you can then mobilise industry behind it, but we don't really even have that. Well, the government has committed uh, to taking forwards a roadmap. They haven't put a timescale on it. All I did with the Net Zero Review was really to look abroad, to look at Germany, who have a 10-year hydrogen strategy, uh, and they've actually committed 10 billion euros to that, to look at the United States, not just with their 45Q tax credit, that's guaranteed to January 2033, but also to the commitment of $3 a kilogram for hydrogen. You know, this is a sort of commitment that will catalyze private industry. And in contrast, at the moment, we have a net zero hydrogen fund that's just uh, basically allocated about £40 million to 15 projects. It's going to basically produce about 400 megawatts of hydrogen. You know, Our commitment is to one megawatt of electrolytic, i.e. green hydrogen produced by electricity by 2025. I'm not sure that's going to be achieved, uh, given that the energy bill is now still you know, yet to be properly passed with regulations going through. It's incredibly short timescale. 10 uh, gigawatts of hydrogen, 5 gigawatts of electrolytic uh, hydrogen by 2030. I think that's unambitious. I, 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 you know, Yes, we've got a timescale. We've got to work to what's practically uh, deliverable. But if we'd set ourselves you know, stronger pathways with, with stronger outcomes then potentially it's not a, a challenge, as Emma said, you know, industry is willing to decarbonize and is willing to use hydrogen. We have the clusters in place. For me, the challenge is that we have this artificial track process, which means that we have to prioritize track one and then track one B and then track two. It's all artificial developed by central government. And yes, we need certainty, but my worry is that central government's holding back industry by straightjacketing in these track processes. Emma. 10 points to the UK for being really good at bureaucracy on this, but less good at the others. I was thinking about where we can learn lessons from other technologies as well. And something that's often said to me about wind is why don't we manufacture more here? Now we do have some blade factories, but they came as a kind of second order thought. And the thing I always say to politicians about that is we actually had the earliest wind turbines in the world in the UK. In a, yeah, I know, it's surprising. Um, but we did a lot of the R&D and the research on that in our universities because world-class universities. And in a similar way, we were pretty early movers on the research for hydrogen and carbon capture. And we have industrial clusters and old industries and the infrastructure that means that as a punt, it could be a world-leading area for the UK and hydrogen could create 46,000 jobs, we think, in existing areas of the country we're also trying to level up. So there's a, the earlier you move, the bolder you are, the more industrial benefits you get in the transition that I think we should learn from the previous sort of push for renewables. We are going to come back to green jobs in just a minute. I, I want to pick up on a, a point that Chris made about the industry being willing to decarbonize. That certainly does seem to be the broad narrative. Can you speak a little bit more to the industries that you think would benefit from this transition, but also the areas in which that transition is being postponed and clogged up? I think there are outstanding questions about how this is best going to be delivered. Is the gas grid, for example, the most effective way of delivering hydrogen? We don't really seem to have clear-cut answers to this. I think it comes back to prioritization. 
one of those startling statistics in the net zero review was actually that six percent of all businesses in the form of foundation heavy industries are responsible for around 80 percent of all gas use so if we can take the perro principle of looking actually at you know what we can do to decarbonize a small fragment of industry or have disproportionate results and we will actually be able to uh, meet our 2030 commitments uh, faster and that's absolutely key when we look at the cop 28 global stock take it's set out that, yes, we're off track, but we need to meet our commitments for 2030. We're going to meet net zero by 2050. And actually, when we look at these industries, steel, glass, cement, you know, they're all able to be decarbonized using hydrogen and very difficult to electrify these industries. And that's where we should focus our attention ruthlessly, absolutely ruthlessly and strategically focus that as a priority. And that's when the net zero review set out as a 10-year hydrogen program because it's not just also about those industrial clusters in Teesside or in high high net in the northwest of the country there's lots of dispersed sites that needs access to a hydrogen grid and that's where repurposing the gas grid will be important creating transportation storage models for hydrogen to allow dispersed industrial sites to access hydrogen is going to be key let's not necessarily waste it and have a you know it's not a false debate but it's just not an important debate on hydrogen for home heating because we're not going to have enough hydrogen at this moment in time to be able to supply anything apart from what's needed in industry. Uh, so let's focus on that. And then you know, after that, yes, you know, there's a discussion on house, uh, hydrogen for home heating because you know it sells papers and it's tangible for people. They might have hydrogen being pumped into their homes. But it's probably a non-starter. And I think the challenge for government is actually setting out a certain pathway for industry so we can get on with decarbonizing our homes through electrification and focusing the use of hydrogen solely on industry and power. I think it's pretty clear in many cases what we're going to electrify first and transport and heat are pretty obvious examples of those with with some exceptions around the edges, things like heat networks and so on. But there's this question therefore about the gas grid as a strategic asset for can we use it to move hydrogen around for industry? What are the costs of that? who pays for it because if you're not using it for something which is about you know energy retail does it need to be a different funding model than bills as fewer people have gas boilers does it become regressive all of those kinds of big strategic questions and as i said last year i don't think there's enough thought about the detail of this because we're stuck at the the cheap political you know make a choice about it for home heating or not that's actually simply not where the debate is Mm. emma i want to come on to green jobs because government and industry love to talk about the potential for tens of thousands of new high-skilled jobs that could be better paid, that could really help to level up communities. But some people are very skeptical of these jobs. Uh, The Spectator recently spoke to Gary Smith, head of the GMB union, who has been very vocal about the lack of jobs that him and his members tend to see, really questioning where these green jobs are. I think there's a piece of research out from some of the other trade unions, I'm going to say the TUC, maybe Prospect, talking about the potential for green jobs. I think in the GMB's case, and this is indicative of the wider point I'm making, they've got a lot of workers in the industries that need to transition, many gas installers, and also many workers in traditional sectors and up in Aberdeen on so on. So it's unsurprising that they're doing the thing that a union does, which is try and protect their existing workforce. For me, when I look at green jobs, I do think it's been something where we've talked about them across the economy and haven't got into granular detail. So 
absolutely bullishly, I promise, the net zero agenda delivers a stronger economy, as Chris's review finds, and more jobs for people because it's the future of the economy in the long run. I think the trickier political question is where are those jobs and are they in the same places as existing jobs and how do we make sure we look after workers through the transition? So 46,000 jobs in hydrogen, 26,000 jobs in industries that would need to transition. Do those two figures match up? If they don't, what do we do? How do we reskill people? How do we move people over? You know, which companies take those workers on who does the training? I think for business, that's where our brains are at anyway, because we love a detailed plan. But I would like to see policymaking get to that level. And I agree with you. If we stay at the level of there's just loads of jobs, so there's no jobs at all, then we don't actually solve these problems. Mm. And Chris, a lot of people are not going to be convinced by the hypothetical. They're going to actually want to see the job offer. They're going to want to see the salary. And crucially, they're going to want to be confident that they will have the skill set to be able to be hired into that job and to earn that salary. Do you think there is a legitimate fear and frustration on the part of people who are questioning where exactly those jobs are, can they be asked to go along with this transition so long as those jobs remain hypothetical? So I would say uh, when it comes to looking at net zero, if decarbonization leads to deindustrialization, it will be a failure. You know, we need to ensure first and foremost, and one of the reasons why I took forward the Mission Zero report was that net zero is not just an environmental policy tool, it's an economic reality that if we stand still, if we delay, if we do not continue to lead, you know, those jobs will go elsewhere that you know, are being set up in the States. They are being set up in Germany. And we're potentially losing not just market advantage. You know, we are losing the opportunity for those jobs to be reinvested and relocated uh, in the UK. And when it comes to hydrogen, for example, just one specific example, you know, ITM Power uh, produces electrolyzers. The electrolyzer industry alone potentially, you know, the, the EU has said that they think they need 650 times more electrolyzers than they currently have. And they have actually set a definitive target of 40 gigawatts of H of hydrogen electrolyzers by 2030 to be imported. That's on our doorstep. We could seize that prize if we wanted to. So there's a specific company that's winning uh, co- you know, contracts. There's a target and you know, actually set out a pathway for electrolyzers. And the offshore renewable energy catapult said that this potentially is up to 300 billion pounds of the GVA. Now, not that's a you know, high-end figure, but it's just one example where you know, what we need to have is almost a prosopography of all these different opportunities to demonstrate to people that where the industries have, have come and they helped transform Hull and various other coastal communities that have moved away from shipping coal to now actually dealing with the transmission lines, like in Northumberland, for example, onto, onto renewables. You know, there's real... Tangible examples, but nevertheless, you know, how do we retrain and reskill the existing populations in this country to recognize the potential advantages of the jobs that are coming? That was one of the recommendations in the review that we took forward from the offshore industries group, the one at the passport. So actually, if you've trained in oil and gas, you are perfectly placed with the skills that you now have to be able to work in carbon capture and, and storage. You know, it's, it's the same machinery, essentially. And, and there's the same for hydrogen when it comes to gas engineers on the gas grid. So let's use the expertise that we've built up. Let's not make sure that expertise goes to other countries and let's repurpose it in the industries of the future. Emma? If you get the market signals right, companies change their business models. And the earlier you do it, the more of that industrial benefit, the jobs training, the skills, the factories you get in the UK. So if we want 300,000 odd heating engineers to be able to install heat pumps 
the earlier the signal they get on what we're doing about heat, the more likely it is those companies can move. And and that's the same for hydrogen and, and carbon capture. I think the point about hydrogen and carbon capture in particular is we do already have skilled workers in these places. They haven't, they are not fully, you know, deindustrialized, to use Chris's words. There are communities who want to transition there and skilled workers who want to move across. If we prevaricate, we will lose them and then we will not be able to retrain them or get them again. So I think it's a very abstract debate in Westminster, but critical for those people, for unions, for others right now. It doesn't have to be a negative thing though. it can secure their future community. The North Sea is a declining basin. It needs something else eventually, whatever we do about oil and gas licensing. This is just sensible economic planning. And the earlier we do it, the better it is for ordinary people because the more of those industrial benefits come here. If you've got anything out of this podcast, it's the longer we leave it, the less economic benefit falls to the UK. And others are competing for hydrogen and carbon capture. So if we have legacy assets, incumbent industries, workers that would benefit us in that race, then we should be clear about them as soon as possible. What is our new approach to achieving net zero? Well, first, we need to change the debate. While we were recording this podcast, Rishi Sunak announced that his government would make changes to the net zero timeline, pushing back bans on new petrol and diesel cars and new gas boilers. It left some in Parliament and industry frustrated, who called for more ambition from the Prime Minister. This is just plain wrong. Absolutely wrong. This is the Prime Minister making a dangerous and desperate U-turn. Electorally stupid as well as environmentally hugely, hugely damaging. So everyone is just confused, they're slightly angry. Prime Minister is now backtracking on the UK's climate commitments. I sat down with John Butterworth, CEO of National Gas, and I started by asking John if he shared these frustrations. Not not really, no. I mean, I I welcomed it because I thought it was really, really positive. Because, you know, in reality, there's there's the theory of net zero and then there's the reality of net zero. And, you know, 23 million families, you know, have got to find a different way to to heat their homes, which is cost effective and affordable. And that's going to take a lot of thinking about. So the idea of just moving it out so that we can think about how do people afford it? How do you change 23 million homes? How do 11 million flats in our cities electrify when they've got gas boilers? How do they build a smaller room to put a hot water store inside their small flat already? You know, there's so many things practically to think about. I I really welcomed it, really welcomed it. John, that's so interesting because I have not come across many industry leaders who have warmly welcomed it. Yeah, okay. Um, Quite unique in that sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I I care about, um, you know, from a gas transmission perspective, which I lead, the National Infrastructure Commission fully support hydrogen at transmission level. Industry, heavy industry supports hydrogen at a transmission level. Even the Climate Change Committee support hydrogen at transmission level. But as someone who's been in the industry, the energy industry, for 45 years, you know, how are half a million businesses going to switch in a really short timeline out of gas into electricity? How are they going to do that? How are the skyscrapers, St. Thomas's Hospital, your building here, 
You know, how are we going to do this? So giving us time to think about it and for industry to think about it. You know, how's a fish and chip shop where they've borrowed 60, 70,000 pounds for their asset to make fish and chips, which is their life. How are we just going to tell them you can't do that anymore? Giving industry customers time and choice and a way we can think about making it more affordable. I think that's really important for our country. Is there a part of you that's more optimistic about these changes because you think it gives hydrogen more of an opportunity on the technological side to catch up? I mean, one of the criticisms of hydrogen that we've heard from some other speakers on this podcast is that the technology just isn't quite there yet. You know, we talk about different colors of hydrogen, blue, green, but if we if we just forget about colours and talk about how are we going to make hydrogen at scale to make sure that we remain the sixth biggest trading nation on the earth so that industry's got the thermal power that it needs, then, you know, we need to think about blue hydrogen. Can you talk us through blue hydrogen? Yeah, so blue hydrogen is where we take gas and we reform it into hydrogen. We take the emissions from that process and we sequestrate it in the North Sea for millennia. You know, we're the envy of Europe, if not the world, because the North Sea is just such a jewel because it has so much storage in shallow water with fantastic geology. And we just need to make more of that. Your critics might say that they would expect to hear that argument from national gas because the system that you're talking about still relies on gas. What about those who want net zero to represent a time where we can make gas essentially obsolete? Yeah, but but I think that's a bit unfair on me because... From the business that I run, nobody's arguing we don't have to have hydrogen at scale for industry. All the commentators, you know, the Climate Change Committee, the National Infrastructure Commission, have all come out in support of hydrogen for industry. Everyone keeps saying to me, of course you would say that, John, you've got a vested interest. I really don't. I just care about doing the right thing because I've spent my life in the industry. So we've just got to think about if we're not going to have gas or hydrogen at a, at a local level, how are we going to supply heat to the population? How is industry going to get the thermal energy it needs for glass making, for ceramics, for heating, for hotels, for swimming pools, for hospitals, for sports centres, for care homes? There's billions and billions of investment gone into those industries to have the energy to be able to go about their business. And we're now saying, well, maybe we should electrify that. But how? Mm. I suppose some critics might say, or not even necessarily critics, just advocates of other kinds of greener energy might say, well, look to wind, look to solar, look to carbon capture, instead of something that is going to fundamentally rely on gas. And I think you, you are absolutely right. And that is my position. Let's look at everything, everything. Let's not make it a binary discussion about is it electricity, is it gas, is it electricity, is it hydrogen. We're going to need everything, everything you've just described, absolutely everything to get there. You know, how are we going to decarbonise the flats in London? What heavy industry, how are we going to get hydrogen to them? Where we can electrify, of course let's electrify. And then when the wind doesn't blow, how are we going to think about making sure we've got enough energy? Because in 2022, for 262 days, we'd have had blackouts in the UK if we didn't have gas. So let's think about a joined-up energy system and use everything we've got 
to get to the right answer. I'm not advocating 100% hydrogen, 100% gas. I'm advocating let's have a grown-up discussion about what's best for the population rather than try and get into this binary discussion. You've brought up one of the more controversial aspects of hydrogen, um, which I want to go into, which is heat, particularly heat for homes. Uh, Speaking to Chris Stark and Emma Pinchbeck earlier in this podcast, they gave a sense that heat for homes was dominating the discussion around hydrogen, when really it should be about proving that hydrogen works for industry. Some think that that debate has already been played out and is over, that hydrogen probably won't be the predominant form of energy used for heating homes. But it strikes me that you might disagree with that. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I just think it it needs some thinking about. So if you take the street outside here, we've got a 36-inch gas main. Yeah, And if we're not going to use it anymore for home heating, what's industry going to do? Because it's the same pipe. What are hotels going to do? What's Westminster going to do? It's all interconnected over the last 200 years. So it just needs some thinking about, because if you discount home heat to the domestic population, it's the same pipe that goes into factories, hotels, buildings, churches, and I said the House of Commons. So it just needs some thinking about. I'm not against it at all. What do you make of the government's rather negative messaging on hydrogen boilers? Do you think that it's harming the wider cause for hydrogen use? I, I think you, the thing that I'm, I'm disappointed in is, and, and again, I, I, I don't have a vested interest. I'm a transmission operator. But at a local level in the distribution networks, a hydrogen-ready boiler is the same price, is the same size, does the same as you've got today. So if you mandated hydrogen-ready boilers, there's 1.6 million boilers a year changed in the UK, and that's not didn't change last year. We could just put hydrogen-ready boilers in at no cost, no regrets, no problem. So why wouldn't we do that? It doesn't cost any more money. Mm. Speaking of the money, hydrogen remains quite an expensive technology, especially when we're looking at the cost for consumers. You have warmly embraced Rishi Sunak's decision to push back some of those closer deadlines thinking about the consumer and what they can afford and when they can afford it. Surely the cost of hydrogen is going to have to come down significantly if we are to stick with that sort of mindset that he laid out, that you have to bring the customer with you and that this has to benefit them. I agree. And and you're, you're absolutely right. But if you think about how expensive wind is, well, how less expensive, wouldn't say it's cheap, but how less expensive it is now. And the same, you've already seen the first steam reforming plant to make hydrogen. The second one was 30% efficient than the first one. Shell's new process is up, getting towards 90%. So as we do this, we'll get more and more and more experienced, like every technology that's new and more efficient. So I don't worry about getting it into the high 90s of efficiency. Often when I speak to the private sector, speaking about all different kinds of energy, they like to stress their role, uh, especially when it comes to subsidizing or taking risks with these new technologies, especially from that perspective that Rishi Sunak laid out about how uh, it's very important to take customers with you. Can you talk to me a little bit about how National Gas perceives its role in this transition, not just from the technological perspective and advancing that technology, but also from the funding perspective? Yes. So, you know, we'll end up with three networks in the future, a gas network, a hydrogen network where we're going to repurpose 
about 2,000 kilometres of our pipe into high-pressure hydrogen for industry, going to industrial clusters, and a carbon capture network where it works like Grangemouth is a great example, where we'll take CO2 emissions from Grangemouth and then send it down to our gas terminal at St Fergus, where it will then be sequestrated in the North Sea for millennium. So we'll end up with three networks. And I think there'll be different models of how they are funded, and that will evolve as the technology matures. Mm. But what about National Gas's role in, in, in helping to make this affordable? I mean, is it is it yeah. willing to put more investment into hydrogen? Yeah. Is it what, t- Talk yeah. to me through so some of those it, numbers. So, our number one priority, number one priority is affordability. So our bills currently, you know, customers on their on their energy bill, it's about £10 is us, the national gas transmission system. And why we're going to keep bills down is what we're going to do, which is a world first, is we're going to repurpose the existing gas pipelines into hydrogen and carbon capture. So we're not going to build new pipes or very few new pipes. We're going to reuse what we've got and turn it into a hydrogen pipeline and carbon capture pipelines across the UK. So that keeps bills right down. And how safe is that? What are the safety issues when it comes to the hydrogen gas mix and putting that through gas pipelines? Yeah, great. So we would never even consider a hydrogen network or a carbon capture network unless it was absolutely safe. So we have a project on our test site up in Cumbria called Future Grid, where we have taken every type of fitting you can dream of on our system that's over the last 50 years we've cycled it to 40 years deterioration to check that it's in that it's absolutely as safe as houses and then we've welded that system into a mini national gas transmission system up on our test site and we're then injecting high pressure hydrogen into it and in December we'll be at 100% hydrogen so we've got all the bits of kit that you you would know and love across the UK all in one place that are tested to within an inch of the life and we will never do anything ever to compromise safety. What kinds of changes would we need to see for your experiment to be implemented at that wider scale? Yeah. So in terms of the gas transmission system, yeah, yeah so of the 8,000 kilometres, we would repurpose 2,000 kilometres into a, a sole hydrogen network. And that hydrogen network would go to the big industrial heartlands of the UK to decarbonise them first. Mm. So you feel comfortable investing then, for example? I think there have been some questions over the past few years around things like a windfall tax, about the certainty that government policy can bring, especially to energy companies. Does National Gas feel pretty certain about the next, say, five to 10 years? Yeah. So if, if you look up to 2030, we're looking to invest about eight billion in hydrogen and the methane network, plus um, carbon capture. Mm. Do you think it's possible for everybody to come together right now and be completely honest and realistic about that balance when obviously certain major companies have decided to invest one way and others are investing in another? From the consumer perspective, this can be great for competition. But is industry really in a place right now where it can have those honest discussions given how much investment they're putting behind their own chosen form of renewable energy? Yes, a great question. You know, in my view, I think if you put the lens solely of affordability and that everyone can participate, not just the wealthy, everyone can 
can do something towards decarbonizing and you don't lose any focus on that affordability lens, then I think you naturally have to bring everyone together because it's, cause it's going to require so many solutions from fish and chip shops to hospitals to glassworks to people in a flat in London to people in a farm in Kent, whatever it might be. So I think driving hard the affordability angle makes people come together with the cheapest options. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. There seems then to be a broad consensus that hydrogen is expected to be part of the net zero mix, but what it's used for and just how expensive that will be remains a live debate. Thanks again to all my guests, Chris Stark, Emma Pinchbeck, Chris Skidmore, and John Butterworth. And thanks as well to National Gas for sponsoring this podcast.